Uh, most gracious and ever-living God, we give you thanks and praise for the blessing of this day and the opportunity you give us again and again to gather in your name. As always, we, we beg, most gracious God, that you'd be in the midst of us. And as we hear today uh, of your encounter with Elijah, we pray that your voice would indeed um, speak to us, most gracious God, that it would shape and fashion us where we're despondent, it would encourage us where we're in error, that it would rebuke us. But in all ways, Lord, uh, as you do, that you would bring life to us, we pray. And these things we ask and these things we give thanks for now in the name of your Son, who is Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. All right, everyone, please get your, get your coffee. Come on in. Uh, Joe and I, it's funny, we, um, uh, independent of one another, decided to reflect some um, on this, and of course, Joe had a very fine sermon this morning uh, on this particular passage. But you know, commented to Joe, uh, it is one of those passages I've reflected on. Um, I've reflected on this this for years, and it, it's one of those things. Every time I reflect on it, I, I see some things that are familiar, sort of uh, reminders, renewals, if you will. And, and also, at times, as I reflect on this over the years, God and His and His wonderful grace reveals new things as well. And I think certainly part of that is as God continues to, to open His Word to us uh, over time. And I think part of it certainly um, is sort of where we are at the particular moment uh, and God's ability and God's Word and the power of God's Word to speak to us in the particular situations in which we find ourselves uh, in our lives. You might think um, uh, Elijah and Ruby Turpin um, from Flannery O'Connor's uh, short story Revelation might seem a, a funny pair, uh, and granted they don't they don't pair up exactly. Um, and uh, and Flannery O'Connor's short story Revelation kind of one of the more uh, straightforward uh, of her short stories. But but it's interesting because in 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 both the account of kings of God's work in the life of the prophet Elijah, but also in the ways in which Flannery O'Connor's short story, Revelation, the way in which um, God speaks to Ruby Turpin, in some ways, um, they're, they're very similar, and the reasons behind that are, uh, among others, um, these. One is what I would say, in, in both of these accounts, we see the grace of God alive and at work and moving. Uh, wonderfully, uh, we see the, the persistent pursuit of God uh, in, in chasing after people who are reluctant to be caught. Um, we, we see um, that grace is not something which is merited. We see God pursuing um, both of these individuals in, in a word of, of grace and a word of revelation which is given to them. But also one of the things that I would say is this, and I think this is um, true in life, is that sometimes graces are initially hard graces. Uh, sometimes graces are... Uh, originally hard graces. And what I, what I mean by that is, is this. God works um, for our life, uh, and God works for our well-being. God works for our wholeness. And, of course, we, we more often than not resist him in that. And, and God's grace is designed in order to lead us to life. And, and all of us in our lives, uh, sometimes what we need is, is a pat and an encouragement, uh, and sometimes what we need is a kick. Um, and God seems to work uh, in ways um, which are across the board. And one of the things we see actually both as well in this short story and also in the account of Elijah is the desire, which is uh, a human desire, um, to, to put God in a box. And that's kind of a cliche, but, but it's true. The desire to put God in a box and say, God, this is the way um, that you need to operate. This is the way that I expect you to operate. This is the way that I expect you 
um, to reveal yourself. This is the way that I expect you to move. Uh, but the reality is, is God's not a God in hand. Uh, and God um, has a way of uh, acting one way, uh, moving one way in one situation, and moving one way in another situation. He has a way of speaking in one way to one person uh, and speaking uh, another way to another person in another context. For instance, uh, conversion stories. As you read throughout the scripture, there's not, there's not one way that conversion takes place. Uh, we see conversion is ultimately repentance. Conversion is ultimately um, turning to God uh, and receiving the life found in him. But we see the way that God moves and works and brings that about in people's lives can be very different uh, in the way that, that he acts. And it's a wonderful thing about God that he works. Uh, but a couple of things I want us to reflect on this morning. And one is to see that in both of these stories, uh, in, in many ways, they begin with idolatry. Uh, in many ways, they begin with idolatry. And that idolatry um, leads to a despondency. So beginning um, with idolatry, sort of false uh, worship, false um, ideas, uh, and then when those are wonderfully, gracefully exploded by God, um, then the response of despondency and discouragement initially, but then uh, in the end we see the power of God and the grace of God working to bring truth, working to bring his revelation, ultimately working um, to bring life, a God who works through death and through resurrection. Uh, and one of the things as we begin as well is to say this. One definition, which y'all have probably heard before, of a definition of the gospel. And we see it uh, in these encounters, and that is that first and foremost, the gospel tells us, not foremost, but first, um, the gospel tells us um, than worse, than, that we are worse than we thought. Um, you know, we like to think, you know, we, we like to think, you know what, yes, I know I'm bad, but thank God there are others who are worse. Um, and, and that's uh, and that's Ruby Turpin. You know, she has all the um, uh, smug, um, self-righteous, uh, sort of old-school, external um, Southern Christianity. Um, uh, bless their hearts, but I'm glad I'm not trash like them. Um, you know, <laughs> Lord, I'm so grateful that you made me me um, and, and, and not them. Uh, but one of the first things about the gospel, the gospel reveals to us, is we are much worse um, than we thought, uh, much more... Um, sinful um, in our hearts and our minds and our drives and our desires, more broken, uh, more in need of salvation uh, than we can begin to imagine and also uh, completely unable to accomplish it ourselves. So the first thing the gospel tells us is that we're much worse than we thought, but also uh, it comes behind it also tells us that through Christ we're more loved and accepted than we ever dreamed possible. Uh, and we see both of those things at work. We're worse than we thought at the beginning, but also that God and his love and his grace pursues us in order that we might be more loved, more accepted, more filled um, than we ever dreamed possible in a way in which nothing else uh, can fill us. So as we uh, reflect on those things, I share a couple of quotes uh, from uh, Flannery O'Connor uh, as they apply to both of these encounters this morning. One of the things she says is this. She says, all my stories about the action of grace on a character who is not very willing to support it. Uh, I, I love that. She said, all of my stories are about the action of grace on a character who is not very willing um, to support it. And she goes on to say, but most people think of these stories as hard, hopeless, uh, and brutal. Uh, she also says, and I think this is a, is a fantastic one, she says, all human nature vigorously resists grace because grace changes us and changes pa painful. Uh, all human nature resists grace. Why? Because grace um, brings change in our life and, uh, and change uh, is, is painful. 
And she finally says this, um, which I think is, um, is particularly funny. Um, it sounds like her, because, um, you know, we spent a lot of time together um, back in the day um, in Milledgeville. Um, she says, um, there's a question whether faith can or is supposed to be emotionally satisfying. I must say that the thought of everyone lolling about in an emotionally satisfying faith is repugnant to me. Um, faith sometimes wonderfully encouraging, faith sometimes um, very true, uh, and, and yet not always emotionally satisfying. Uh, the truth is sometimes satisfying, and sometimes the truth is the truth. Um, whether it's initially satisfying to us um, or not. So let me begin a little bit by talking about 1 Kings uh, 19. And as I do that, I'll I'll set uh, a little bit of of context. 1 Kings uh, 19, of course, we read a portion of that this morning in our our Sunday worship. And in the portion which we read, we see that um, Elijah, as Joe wonderfully pointed out this morning, he's he's fled um, after... After the highest of highs, the the victory of victories uh, in the chapter right before as as God defeats um, the prophets of Baal, uh, we see that um, Elijah after this receives word um, from Jezebel because Ahab goes home and and it's kind of. It's kind of humorous. Uh, he goes home and he tells his wife. Um, guess, guess, guess what he did. Uh, and Jezebel sends word, which you remember we heard just a moment ago. You know what? Um, let it be to me if you're not dead by the end of the day. Uh, and one of the things that we've, that we've seen is Jezebel uh, is she's true to that promise. Uh, she's dispatched any number um, of prophets. And so uh, we hear that Elijah goes on the run, and the portion we read is as God um, wonderfully appears to Elijah and ministers to him. But um, to back up just a little bit, let me say a few words about what was going on. And it begins in 1 Kings 16. Kings uh, chronicles the various um, kings of the people. And and one of the things that we see repeatedly throughout all of these is that um, uh, unfaithfulness and idolatry um, are a continued challenge um, to the people. But actually, um, we hear that Ahab takes it to a new level. Uh, in essence, what King says is, you know what, the other kings are bad, um, but they couldn't even dream about being as bad uh, as Ahab was. And I quote to you now from 1 Kings sixteen twenty nine. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, the son of Omri, began to reign over Israel. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel and Samaria 22 years. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. And as, it, as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nabad, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal uh, and worshipped him. As I read this, uh, and, and uh, maybe it's just me, because it's almost, uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's damning, but it's also uh, comical. I, I sort of envision it and uh, in, in sort of the, the sound of um, Arlo Guthrie um, and Alice's Restaurant. It's just sort of, it, it's sort of I could, uh, I see that resonates. Um, y'all, y'all, share, y'all share that if you don't remember that. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. And he goes on, and Ahab made an Asherah, and he did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. Um, so we hear that this is, this is Ahab and Jezebel. The other kings are bad, but they didn't even dream about being as bad as Ahab and Jezebel um, would be. Because in essence, what they did is they instituted um, Baal worship 
uh, as the official um, religion of the people. Uh, and she brought in um, all of these prophets. They built um, temples and erected um, altars. And it's interesting because Baal um, actually uh, means Lord. Uh, Baal actually means Lord. And, and one commentator pointed out, and I, and I think this is sort of interesting, it says, in many ways the pagans are ahead of us. Uh, and, and, he, and he said, what I mean by that is this, is that they recognize um, that anything, in essence, that, that we give um, power to, anything that we give obedience to, uh, anything that we basically chase after in our lives becomes a god to us, um, becomes, uh, becomes a lord to us, begins to control us uh, in our lives. And one of the things, uh, Baal uh, means lord, and there was more than just one Baal. Um, there was Baal uh, of this, and there was Baal uh, of that. It wasn't just uh, one. It was particularly, it was sort of like um, whatever you choose to worship, there's a bail for that. Um, there's a bail for all of these. But particularly, one of the things that uh, Baal was a fertility god. One of the chief ways in which he was worshipped, as you might imagine, as a fertility god, um, he, he brought rain to the earth. Uh, and of course, uh, the rain to the earth brought forth um, life, brought forth provision um, for the people. But here's the interesting thing about their worship uh, of Baal and, and all these different gods. There was a period uh, of the year, Baal had an enemy, uh, and Baal's enemy was another god, Mot. Uh, and Mot was the god of death. And so basically, uh, there was a dry season and there was a rainy season. And what the people said is, in essence, uh, for a period of time, Baal must submit um, to Mot, the god uh, of death, until uh, he comes and brings rain again to the earth. Well, all that I know it was particularly gripping to y'all, but here's the significance of it. Um, the significance of it is, is this. One of the things that Elijah said is there's going to be a drought. Um, there's going to be a three-year drought, um, which is going to be over the land so that you can see um, who the true God is. The true God is, is not Baal. Um, he's an idol. He's a God of your invention. Uh, there's going to be a drought which comes over the land that you might see and know who the true God is when the time um, is revealed. And of course, uh, Joe referenced this morning um, the encounter which um, takes place on Mount Carmel as, uh, as uh, Elijah goes uh, against um, the prophets uh, of Baal and, and wonderfully 450 prophets um, to Elijah. And Elijah just basically says, look, you guys want a test? Let's have a test. Let's have a contest. We'll see um, who the true God is. And I'll just sort of say um, quickly, you're familiar um, with the story, um, they begin to, the prophets of Baal begin to dance around and to slash uh, themselves and to dance more frenetically uh, as time goes on. And, and this is um, actually an instance of, um, well, I guess, uh, I, I, guess you could, um, I guess you could call it biblical smack um, is, is kind of what it is because um, it's sort of biblical trash talk uh, because we hear that uh, and this is at 18.27. And at noon, Elijah mocked them, crying, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he is musing, or he is relieving himself, or he is on a journey, or perhaps he's asleep and must be awakened. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on uh, until the time of the offering of the oblation. But there was no voice. Uh, no one answered. No one paid attention. Interestingly, you hear what it says? Um, there was no voice. Um, they did all of this. They did all of this. Uh, they tried to, you know, basically uh, force God to come down in the way that they made their offerings, to force God to come down in the way that they danced, to force God to come down in the way that they slashed themselves and called upon him.
But what do we hear? We hear that in this instance, there was no voice. Uh, There was no voice because there was no God uh, that they were calling upon. And of course, as you know, Elijah steps up, um, offers a simple prayer. Lord, there's no other God but you after having uh, not only the offering cut up, but actually doused with water to the point that the water flows down and fills up the ring around it as if it were a moat. Uh, It's so absolutely drenched. And we hear um, that fire both comes up from it and comes down um, upon it, and it's consumed uh, completely. And, of course, the prophets um, are are chased off. The prophets um, are slayed. And we hear, interestingly, that at that point, Elijah does what? He, he runs ahead to Jezreel. Um, he runs ahead to Jezreel. Why? Why does he run ahead to Jezreel? Because he thinks, surely, now the people will believe. Surely, after they've seen this, um, the people will believe. Look, How can you miss it? Look what God did in this particular place. Surely now, not only will the people believe, um, but their hearts will be softened um, and they will turn uh, and they will return to God. Uh, And Ahab and Jezebel, they will see um, and their hearts will be softened and they will turn and return to God. Uh, And of course, one of the things that we see throughout the scriptures is that um, fantastic things uh, don't necessarily change hearts, do they? Uh, And things which seem absolutely clear uh, and certain can be uh, completely and utterly resisted um, and rejected. And so he's, he's shocked uh, that as he gets there, um, the people are no different um, and they're no better and their hearts are no more softened um, than before that had happened. Uh, and we hear that the promise is made and he takes off and he runs um, for, fear, uh, for fear of his life. And I'll switch over for just a moment now. Um, to Flannery O'Connor's revelation. So I'll just sort of say by word of sort of placing a bookmark, uh, an amazing thing happened, uh, and we see that the people uh, are are no different than before it happened. Uh, Spectacular signs um, aren't sufficient. And in fact, it's one of the things as you read through the Gospels, uh, some of Jesus' resistance to performing miraculous signs for the people was the recognition that that doesn't change hearts. Uh, It's so easy um, to explain them away or sort of to treat them as a spectacle and ask for another, kind of like a child, do it again. Um, Do it again one more time um, and and I'll believe. Uh, You remember Lazarus uh, and dies when he's down. He says, Lord, if you you let me go back just ever so briefly and tell my brothers, um, then they'll listen. And he says, you know what? They won't listen. Uh, They have Moses uh, and the prophets. They've been told again and again and again. And spectacular signs um, are not... I'm going to accomplish it. And so um, Elijah is despondent. um, And actually, some of the commentators, and this is interesting, some of the commentators say um, that this is bad editing, uh, that there's no way that this could be actual. There's no way that Elijah could go from this tremendous success and this highest of highs to being despondent uh, and running away um, with fear. And what they say is this is bad editing. Um, There's no way that that could be the case. Well, obviously, those commentators don't know human nature, do they? Uh, How many of us know that we can be absolutely at the top one moment uh, and then completely despondent the next? Uh, Or tremendously faithful at one moment in one particular situation and then just be grasping or faithless in another? Um, The commentators don't recognize how fickle our human nature is and how deeply uh, and desperately we need the power of God to work in our weakness. How deeply and desperately we need the grace of God to move and to work um, in our lives. So Elijah uh, is now despondent and he runs away uh, and we find him under a broom tree. Uh, And interestingly, and I promise I'm 
transitioning, but it's kind of one more thing. There's one more thing I want to say, and, and that is this. One of the things that we hear uh, as Elijah runs off, and it, it's seemingly insignificant, we hear that he leaves his staff and his servant, uh, and he goes away. Well, that's actually very um, significant. And why is that significant? Because what that says is he's, he quit the ministry. Um, he said, I'm out. Uh, he, he left his vestments, uh, and he said, you know what? By leaving his staff and by leaving um, his servant, what it says is he, he quit. Uh, I'm out. And in fact, that's what he initially says to God when God finds him under the broom tree. You know what? Uh, I'm, I'm out. How could you let this happen to so fine a guy as me? Um, I can't believe you would allow this to happen to someone as faithful and upstanding. I mean, I've done so much for you, God. How could you begin to let this happen to me uh, is, in essence, what Elijah says. One of the most um, spectacular um, servants of God, one of the most miraculous people. And yet we find himself um, in a place of self-pity. Um, you're not alone, um, people. It's not unique um, to you and to me, um, that emotion, that despondency, that self-pity, that asking God how in the world um, that this could happen. And we transition now um, to good old Ruby Turpin uh, and the book of Revelation. Some of y'all, uh, I'm sure some of y'all have read the story. There's some of y'all that probably know a lot more about the story in Flannery O'Connor than I do, and I just keep it to yourself until the questions. Um, but... Um, <laughs> Uh, but, but one of the things uh, that we see in this, uh, the basic story uh, is this. Um, Claude and Ruby Turpin are, are fine, upstanding folks. Claude's been kicked by a cow. Uh, and so they, they go in. Uh, he has an ulcer on his leg. They go in um, to the doctor for the doctor to take a look um, at his leg. And when they get there, there's only one seat um, left in the doctor's waiting room. And, and Ruby um, sort of stands there in the ra- uh, sort of imperiously and tells Claude to sit down. Uh, we hear that Claude was a florid, sturdy man and used to sort of listening to her. So he sat down. And she sort of pushed him down into the chair. And she looked around, you know, waiting uh, for someone decent um, to make space for her, which, of course, um, they, they didn't until one person was, was called back. And she begins to strike up a conversation. Uh, and, in fact, in there, wonderfully in the, in the story, it talks about how Sometimes at night when she couldn't sleep, she basically rates and ranks people in her head, giving thanks for who she is. Lord, I thank you that you made me, you know, um, that you made me, you know, I'm not, I'm not trash like some of these people. And you gave me a little bit of everything in the sense um, to use it. Now, I'm not quite as high as these people, but then, you know, it depends because sometimes they've sort of fallen here. And, I've, and she ends up just sort of muddled as she tries to rank the people and give thanks that she is not like um, those other people. And as she's there, she picks out one woman who's nicely dressed and considers her to be worthy of her conversation and her attention. And uh, next to the woman is this uh, sort of sullen-looking, um, hostile-looking young girl who's reading a book, uh, Human Development uh, is the name of the book. We're told the name of the book is actually Human Development. And an interesting thing, uh, in the waiting room, she's the only person who's named. Um, Mary Grace um, is, is her name. And in essence, uh, God's uh, initially unwelcome revelation uh, comes through uh, Mary Grace. God's sort of hard grace um, to Ruby Turpin comes through uh, Mary Grace because as, as they're talking, um, just uh, incredibly smug uh, and condescending uh, and, and, and racial. And then, but you know what? I'm just so thankful to Jesus that I am who I am um, is, is how they keep going around. And, and Mary Grace uh, continues to get madder uh, and matter, and, and actually her eyes um, are described um, basically sort of burning a hole uh, in Ruby Turpin, sort of at times smoldering, at times blazing um, as she fixes her eyes on Ruby Turpin. And interestingly, as she fixes her eyes on her, Ruby 
it's a small waiting room. Um, so she picks up on this. She realizes, and Ruby's sort of having this internal conversation with herself, um, that poor child, uh, well, at least God didn't make me ugly. Um, that poor child, I, I can't believe that she's staring at me. Why would she be um, staring at me? I, I, I can't, I can't um, believe this. And at one point, uh, and I read to you now as she's talking um, with the mother, and as she's talking with the mother, the mother uh, is sort of speaking to her daughter, and it... Um, uh, and it's uh, her daughter can't miss. Uh, this is the nicely dressed mother of the daughter, Mary Grace. Her mother's mouth grew thin and tight. I think the worst thing in the world, she said, is an ungrateful person to have everything and not appreciate it. And, you know, kids typically respond very well to that. Um, so um, this is uh, this is Mary Grace's mother. Uh, I know a girl, she said, who has parents who would give her anything a little brother who loves her dearly, who is getting a good education and who wears the best clothes, but who can never say a kind word to anyone, who never smiles, who just criticizes and complains all day long. Is she too old to paddle, Claude said. Now, the girl's face was almost purple. Yes, the lady said. I'm afraid there's nothing to do but leave her to her folly. Someday she'll wake up and it'll be too late. It never hurt anyone to smile, Mrs. Turpin said. It just makes you feel better all over. Uh, and then uh, Ruby goes on to say, um, if it's one thing I am, it's grateful. When I think who all I could have been besides myself and what all I got, a little of everything and a good disposition besides, I just feel like shouting, thank you, Jesus, for making everything the way it is. It could have been different. For one thing, somebody else could have got clawed. At the thought of this, she flooded with gratitude and a terrible pang of joy ran through her. Oh, thank you, Jesus. Jesus, thank you, she cried aloud. The book struck her directly over her left eye. Uh, if you, <laughs> if y'all, if y'all remember the story, um, at this point, Mary Grace launches um, the book uh, at Ruby Turpin. Obviously, the, uh, she's, thank you, Jesus, thank you, Jesus. The book strikes her over the left eye. And, and actually, um, Mary Grace leaps over the table and begins to, uh, if, in, in WWF um, terminology, begins to choke her out. Um, Mary Grace leaps across the table, begins um, to choke um, Ruby Turpin. They, they, pull her, they pull her off of her, uh, and, uh, and she's initially uh, a little uh, discombobulated. And as she looks over, she's, she's on the ground, and as she looks over, she sees Mary Grace um, as um, they're wrestling her to the floor and as they're beginning to administer some sedative um, to her, and, and interestingly, we hear that um, that Mary Grace's eyes are now sort of clearer, as if light and air had now flooded into him. And Ruby Turpin says to her, "What do you got to say to me?" And Mary Grace looks at her and just calmly and quietly says to her, "Go back to hell where you came from, you old warthog." Uh, and um, and she's taken out um, on on a gurney. And it begins uh, an interesting spiritual process um, for Ruby Turpin because um, she asks um, the question of the Reformation. How can I be saved and a warthog, um, in essence? Uh, how can I be both saved uh, and from hell? Simul justus et peccator uh, is, in essence, simul justus et warthogus uh, is what she says. How can I be simultaneously saved and from hell? How can I be me, a fine Christian woman, um, and, and a warthog. And we hear that, that she goes home uh, and she is, is distraught. And, and this is, uh, this has upset her. And as I say, it, it's, again, it's, this is a wonderful hard grace uh, because uh, wonderfully, uh, 
in God's grace, she's not left where she was before. She is unsettled. Um, she is provoked. She is um, attacked, but yet in such a way that ultimately she might be uh, led to and receive this revelation. And so she goes out, uh, and she goes out, and she begins to. <laughs> this is very um, sort of picturesque. Uh, she begins to wash down the hogs. Uh, so she goes out to the pen and and. And they're actually such clean-up standing people that their hogs are actually on a concrete slab um, so they don't have to wallow in the mud. And they wash them down um, every day. And so she goes out and she's washing um, the hogs down. And as she's washing the hogs down, she's having this conversation um, with God. And she's having this conversation with God. And she's railing um, at God. And she says, if you like trash better, go get yourself some trash then. You could have made me trash. If trash is what you wanted, why didn't you make me trash? She shook her fist with a hose in it, and a watery snake appeared momentarily in the air. I could quit working and take it easy and be filthy, she growled. Lounge about the sidewalks all day, drinking root beer, dip snuff and spit in every puddle and have it all over my face. I could be nasty. Uh, And she goes on and she rails um, against God. And then finally, um, she yells one more time, go on, she yelled, call me a hog. Call me a hog again from hell. Call me a warthog from hell. Put that bottom rail on top. There'll still be a top and bottom. A final surge of fury shook her and she roared, Who do you think you are? Uh, and so uh, we see Ruby so pierced uh, by this. Who do you think um, you are, God, um, that I should be treated this way? Uh, and in essence, we see a somewhat similar thing happening um, with Elijah. We hear that Elijah um, runs off. He runs off. Uh, you know, granted, um, there, there's some reason um, for his running off. Um, Jezebel had said um, that she was going to kill him. Uh, and we hear that there's some, uh, there's some reason, there's some merit um, to his running off. But then interestingly, we see this. Um, what does God do um, with uh, Ruby Turpin? And, and I'll say, uh, maybe perhaps to some, Flannery O'Connor is not scripture, um, but, you know, we're sort of working through the story. But in this, in 1 Kings, um, what does God do um, with Elijah when he quits, uh, when he runs off, when he says, you know what, um, I've, I've had it, God. Um, what does God do? And this is, this is absolutely um, awesome. And let me read this to you. And actually, uh, he went, as, as, as was mentioned, uh, basically where he ends up is Mount Horeb, a.k.a. Mount Sinai. Uh, and if you remember... Um, who received a vision of God on Mount Sinai? Moses, uh, exactly. And it's interesting as well, and we don't have time to cover all this today, but at the Transfiguration, who appears um, with Jesus in the Transfiguration? Moses, Moses and Elijah uh, appear with Jesus uh, at the Transfiguration. You know, we don't know exactly, but it sounds as if um, that Elijah ran. We hear that 40 days and 40 nights, Elijah ran to the same place um, um, that that Moses went to, Elijah similarly asked God to reveal himself. Uh, And once again, sort of going back to the way that the grace of God works, the way that God speaks to us, uh, the breath with which God works, which is bigger than the breath which we would give him. Uh, In Moses' Moses' case, God has revealed to him as fire. Uh, In Elijah's case, we hear that uh, God sent the wind, he sent the fire, he sent the earthquake, but he wasn't in them. How did God speak to um, Elijah? It was in the whisper. Uh, it was in the quiet, uh, as, as is mentioned, sort of literally um, in, in the Hebrew, uh, a thin silence, a thin 
um, quiet. God speaks to Elijah in that particular way. But, but listen to this, because this is particularly um, interesting. So he runs off and he says, basically, I've, I've had it. Um, it is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I'm no better than my father's. Uh, he's, he's despondent to the point of wanting to die. Uh, I mean, that's, uh, and perhaps uh, those of you here have experienced it that at one point, but he's, he's that despondent. He, he wants, he just says, you know what, let it, let it be over. I'm no better than my father's. Uh, and he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, uh, arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. Um, one person uh, in, in response to this said, you know, what, what did God do in this particular situation? He gave him angel food cake. Uh, we see, we see um, that, that an angel um, appears to him here uh, in this particular situation. But it's interesting. What do we see about uh, the pursuit of God, the grace of God, the work of God in his life? Interestingly, uh, at the end of Flannery O'Connor's revelation, Ruby uh, Turpin receives this amazing gift from God, this phenomenal um, revelation. And, and she doesn't receive it because she's repentant. Uh, we, we hear she's shaking her fist at God. She's mad at God. And yet still God seeks her and gives um, this grace to her. We see with Elijah, uh, he's, he's not repentant at this point. Um, he's, he's not sorry. He's still mad at God. And God appears to him uh, and ministers to him. And what do we see initially? What does God do initially to him? For him? He doesn't show up and give him a lecture. Uh, he doesn't say, you know what, how's your quiet time? Um, you know, are you keeping up with your quiet time? Are you in a small group? Um, is there any unconfessed sin in your life? Um, you know, are you giving regularly? He doesn't show up and give him a lecture like Job's friends and say, surely it's something you're doing. Um, and so let's sort of get to the root of what you're doing, uh, and then we're going to fix this. What does he do? He initially comes and he cooks for him. Uh, he, he touches him uh, and, and he cooks for him. Uh, you know, surely we'd expect God to do something. You know, he brings down fire one moment and another moment he comes uh, just in simple kindness uh, and ministers to uh, ministers to Elijah as, as, as somewhat of an aside. Um, some way, some of the times the way we minister to the, our friends and family, the people we love is through our prayers and through the sharing of our faith and through all sorts of different things. And sometimes it's just the ways uh, sometimes what we need is some simple care. Uh, and, and some kindness. And we see um, God's coming to him and, and treating him with this phenomenal um, kindness uh, as he appears to him. And then we hear that he, he goes off and he hides himself uh, in the cleft uh, of the rock. He hides himself um, in a cave. And yet still we see the amazing um, pursuit of God um, of Elijah. And he's called and he's still even now... Um, He's reluctant, and this is uh, 1910. He said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even only I, am left, uh, and they seek my life um, to take it away. Uh, and he later says, you know what, I alone am faithful. And, you know, um, that, that doesn't apply to Advent. Um, uh, we never think that we alone are faithful. Um, and there's no other people out there. Or perhaps you individually in life think, you know what? Uh, I, wish, I wish other people were faithful um, like I am. He's, he's, got it, he's got it all wrong. I alone am faithful. Everyone else has, has bowed the knee. And then, of course, um, later God will go, so actually there's 7,000 um, that I've actually, um, who also have bowed the knee. But here's the amazing thing as well, is God... Uh, doesn't leave him there. He seeks him. He calls him out. And even as he calls him out, he has to call him out. He's so reluctant to come. Um, but God does um, speak a word um, to him, a 
a word which restores because we see that as God comes to him and seeks him and calls him back into relationship as God um, restores him, he also reveals to him uh, as well that, you know what, I- I've been working all along. Elijah, here's what I'm, here's what I'm going to give you to do. Um, you're going to go, uh, in essence, and pass your mantle um, to Elisha. But also, uh, and this must have just flummoxed Elijah, he said, I also want you to go uh, and uh, he says, I also want you to go um, and anoint. Go return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. When you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be the king over Israel. Well, here's the interesting thing. Hazael is not even a believer. And, and what God says is, you know what? I'm a God who's so big and I'm bringing about my purposes that guess what? I'm even going to use Hazael. Uh, he's going uh, to be part of my work as well. Things, I'm carrying out my good work, uh, and I'll share with you because I'm running out of time. Uh, we see that God seeks him. We see that God calls him to herself, restores him, uh, returns hope to him, but also he doesn't just leave him on the sidelines, but he calls him back into fellowship and sends him forth um, in life as well. A um, bit of a spoiler here, so plug your ears um, if you don't want to hear, but this is um, the end of uh, Flannery O'Connor's uh, revelation. After Ruby Turpin has railed at God, said, you know what, how could you speak to a fine person uh, such as me in this way? And then we hear that this happened. Uh, The sun slipped finally behind the tree line. Mrs. Turpin remained there with her gaze bent to them as if she were absorbing some abysmal life-giving knowledge. At last, she lifted her head. There was only a purple streak in the sky, cutting through a field of crimson and leading like an extension of the highway into the descending dusk. She raised her hand, from the side of the pen, a gesture heretic and profound. A visionary light settled in her eyes. She saw the streak as a vast swinging bridge extending upward from the earth through a field of living fire. Upon it, a vast horde of souls were rumbling toward heaven. There were whole companies of white trash cleaned for the first time in their lives. Uh, and battalions of freaks and lunatics shouting and clapping and leaping like frogs and bringing up the end of the procession was a tribe of people whom she recognized at once as those who, like herself and Claude, had always had a little of everything and the God-given wit to use it right. She leaned forward to observe them closer. They were marching behind the others with great dignity, accountable as they had always been for good order and common sense and respectable behavior. They alone were on key. Yet she could see by their shocked and altered faces that even their virtues were being burned away. She lowered her hands and gripped the rail of the hog pin, her eyes small but fixed unblinkingly on what lay ahead. In a moment, um, the vision faded, but she remained uh, where she was uh, immobile. At length, she got down and turned off the faucet and made her slow way on the darkening path to the house. In the woods, around her, the invisible cricket choruses had struck up. But what she heard were the voices of the souls climbing upward into the starry field uh, and shouting, Hallelujah. This phenomenal grace of God uh, in giving Ruby Turpin this unmerited, uh, undeserved um, vision. Uh, The phenomenal grace of God uh, to pursue Elijah when he had lost faith, when he had become despondent, when he um, had run away uh, from God. Finally, um, I will say this. Uh, One of the things that O'Connor writes here that I think is so interesting um, Yet she could see by their shocks and altered faces that even their virtues 
um, were being burned away. Uh, one of the things um, that we see uh, in 1 Kings, one of the things that's pointed to uh, as God comes uh, and speaks to Elijah uh, is this. Uh, he hides uh, Elijah uh, in, in the rock. Uh, he hides him and he comes and he speaks to them. And one of the things that we ultimately see in, in the grace of God is, is this. Um, while he protects Elijah, while he hides Elijah, one of the things that we'll see in Jesus is that God comes forth into the world and does not protect himself. Uh, that is ultimately um, the grace of God that we see, that God comes into the world, uh, and whereas Elijah is hidden, so he is not crushed uh, as the wind and as the fire and as the earthquake, as the judgment falls, Elijah is protected. And it's a foreshadowing of what we see in Jesus. Uh, the judgment of God falls upon God himself, uh, and he is um, crushed for us, um, that you and I might be people um, who receive his mercy, who receive his forgiveness, who receive uh, his grace in his life. Uh, we hear that grace comes um, to those of us who are not very willing to support it uh, and who often resist it. Um, but what we see amazingly in this passage is the grace of God is alive and at work, um, that we might be people who are forgiven, that we might be restored, that we might be people who aren't always made happy, but in the grace of God at work in our lives, we're people who are ultimately made holy. Uh, and as we hear that, let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your grace which pursues us uh, and for the ways in which Jesus, your Son, you absorb uh, the judgment that would rightly fall upon us that we might be made um, holy. Uh, Lord, fill our hearts with the knowledge of the way in which you gracefully pursue us in our lives and draw our hearts and our minds to you, for you are our life and our salvation. And these things we ask in the name of your Son, who is Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.